Chapter Twelve of To My Younger Brethren by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Preaching Three Eternal fullness overflow to me, till I thy vessel overflow for thee. For sure the streams that make thy garden grow are never fed but by an overflow, not till thy prophets with thyself run o'er are Israel's watercourses full once more. Again I treat of the sermon. We have looked, my younger brother and I, at some main secrets and prescriptions for attractive preaching. What shall I more say on the subject of the pulpit? In the first place, I will offer a few miscellaneous suggestions, and then come in closing to the deepest theme of the whole matter, spiritual power in preaching. Notes for a Sermon Lecture I address myself to write, soon after delivering to my students, in the library adjoining my study, a lecture on preaching. Let me call it rather a talk on sermons, which is a term less grandiose and much more true, for in fact the discourse has been a most informal series of remarks and suggestions on topics suggested by a collection of sermons written for me, and which I now came to give back, annotated to their writers. It occurs to me to offer my kind reader a written version of some of these remarks, just made, viva voce, to my friends. They happen to touch on a variety of points which are not unimportant in themselves, and also typical of very many more. For the purposes of the lecture they have been divided between matters of form and matters of substance, and I report them, or rather some of them, in that order. 1. Remarks on Diction, Style, etc. A. Take care to pull the sentences together, to avoid loose and redundant phrases and words. Why write grief and sorrow, fatigued and tired out, attacks and assaults? A subtle intellect may see distinctions here, but it is too much for me, and I am sure for most plain people in church. B. Respect the Queen's English. The one who lives a Christian life is scarcely English, say the man, not the one like Adam and Eve walked in paradise. This is a serious, though common, piece of bad grammar. Say, like Adam, when he walked, but as Adam walked. C. Remember that the genius of English eschews a large use of connecting words, particularly in spoken discourse. Not often is a sentence the better for an and at the beginning. Many a therefore and because are well away, if you would speak with freedom and vigour. Avoid rhetorical diction. D. Avoid altogether such touches of expression as characterize verse or rhetorical prose. I find in one sermon the sentence, Think you St. Paul trembled at the prospect? Please rewrite this and say, Do you think St. Paul was afraid? For you certainly would not say, speaking however gravely to your friend, Think you that we shall have a fine day tomorrow. Rhetorical phrases rarely give an impression of practical reality. E. Do not speak in the pulpit as if you were writing notes for an edition of the epistles. What does the labourer, and what do many hearers more highly educated than he, think when you say on Romans 5 verse 1 that weighty manuscript authority gives another reading? And what does he think you mean when you talk about Sheol? By the way... 
when you quote scripture in the pulpit passingly to a general congregation i would advise you to quote not the revised version but the authorized which will surely be the english bible for many long days yet unless you have before you some special difference between the two versions on which you can stop to speak explicitly quote the familiar and inimitable diction of sixteen eleven preach what can be reported f prepare your sermon and preach it so that it shall be easy to report one sermon here before me would be as hard as possible to retail at home it is on romans five verse one and it says some excellent things upon it but it brings in holiness of heart where the text speaks only of acceptance of person and it mingles the two topics so ingeniously together that the impression is seriously complicated think of the pious daughter yonder in church going home to her infirm old mother and trying to answer the question what did the gentleman preach about to-night let us do our best to preach sermons which are not only sound but portable g take care to keep the sermon in tune with the text here is a manuscript on psalm five verse twelve a verse of exultant joy but the last passage of the sermon a passage which ought to concentrate the whole message is full of solemn warning warn by all means do not forget to sound the watchman's trumpet but sound it in the right place cut the preface short h here is a sermon sadly spoiled by a long introduction it tells us much about the circumstances of the inspired writer but so as to throw little light on the message of the text here is another on the wonderfully definite hope of blessedness after death given us in philippians one verse twenty one this also is ruined by its introduction which truly begins ab ovo discussing the genesis of man's belief in immortality that preface would leave in the actual delivery of the sermon about five minutes for the handling of the precious words to depart and to be with christ which is far better generally be shy of much introduction and preface in the pulpit I do not mean that we are never to elucidate connections and contexts, but remember limits. Your minutes are few, are so few, for such a message. Christ Jesus in his fullness, for man's need in its depth. Pass quickly through the porch into that church. Be accurate in statement. I. When you refer to scripture facts, be accurate. A slipshod habit there may fatally prejudice a not-quite-friendly hearer who knows something of the Bible, and it will certainly do no good to any hearer. Here is a sermon on Philippians one twenty-one, and it speaks of St. Paul as writing to Philippi from his dark cell. But St. Luke says that he was in his own hired house, or at worst, his own hired rooms. Here again I read of David as returning to Jerusalem, the city of his fathers. But his fathers had lived and died at Bethlehem, and Jerusalem was in heathen hands till David himself took it. 2. Remarks on points in the substance of the sermons. a. Are you quite sure that the patriarchs had no anticipation of a life eternal? Many lecturers and many editors now say so, but the epistle to the Hebrews says that they desired a better country, that is, an heavenly and that is better evidence for this purpose than any inferences or beliefs of modern scholarship. True, the old saints say little explicitly about their hope, but many things lie deep in a man's faith, and in his experience too, about which, for various reasons, he may say very little. 
Revelation was not intuition. B. I do not like this sentence, which says that the later prophets had a fuller perception of the eternal future than their predecessors. Not that I blame the phrase in itself, but I dislike its associations. There runs a strong drift in modern theology, as we all know, towards the explanation of Scripture by perception rather than by revelation. The Lord appeared unto me, the Lord spake unto me, say the prophets, and they appeal occasionally to supernatural attestation of their assertions. But the modern expository savant, wiser to be sure than the prophet, assures us that they arrived at their messages by observation, by meditation, by development of thought and character, and practically by nothing different from these things. Accordingly, their inspiration was strictly speaking the same in kind as that of a Chrysostom, or a Luther, or a Shakespeare. Do not you say so, or imply that it is so. Do not go for mere company's sake with the current of naturalistic thought. Sure I am that you are most unlikely, if you do, to be the instrument of supernatural effects in your preaching. What is justification? C. What is justification? It is the making man just. Is it indeed? I should read that sentence with alarm if I did not know the writer. Its sentiment is practically Roman Catholic. Moreover, it puts a meaning on the word in question, contradicted by the common usages of language, an important consideration when we study a scriptural theological term. When I justify my opinion, I do not make it right, but vindicate it as already right. When the Hebrew judge justified the righteous, he did not improve him, but pronounced him satisfactory to the law. And when God, for Christ's sake, justifies you who believe in Jesus, he does not in that act make you good. He pronounces you for his son's sake to be satisfactory to his law for purposes of your personal acceptance. Why does faith justify? D. Why has faith such power to justify? Because, carried out to its fullest extent, it implies assimilation to its object. Here again I should be alarmed, if I did not know the writer's general convictions, which are sound enough. But this particular sentence again is in full harmony with Romanist doctrine, and, as a fact, with the Bible open, and with usages of common language before us, it can easily be exposed as a confusion of words and thought. Faith, carried out ever so fully, is just faith still, personal reliance, personal confidence on God in his word. That reliance is his appointed and divinely natural way for our reception of Jesus Christ. For our justification, it receives Christ in his merits. It does that, and that only, and always. For our sanctification, it receives Christ in his inward power by the Holy Ghost. But faith is just faith to the end. E. We are not forced to receive salvation. Most true, he enforceth not the will. But do not forget, on the other hand, to magnify the necessity of grace, preventing grace, that is to say, God himself working in us to will, to receive our salvation. The two sides of truth are both divine. Do not neglect either, whether you can harmonize them or not here below. End of the lecture. Such are some specimens of a Saturday morning's talk in our library.
they are taken just as they come from notes constructed after the study of a set of some twenty sermons written and then commented upon without the slightest thought that any public or permanent use would be made of the materials thus given but perhaps the remarks may be in point to some of my readers all the more because of the unstudied nature of the materials let me say before i quite leave this part of my subject that adverse criticism was by no means my only work this morning in the lecture-room it was my happiness on the other hand to commend thankfully many a clear setting of living truth and many a sentence of forcible point and of true beauty happy omens for future years in which if it please god the torch shall be carried on bright and clear when we elders shall be heard no more my cases of old sermons but now let me return from this discursive report of a sermon lecture to some more central thoughts about the preaching of the word sacred solemn theme i was made to realize its character in a peculiar way quite lately when reading a heart-searching and most instructive essay by the rev r glover vicar of st luke's west holloway entitled my cases of old sermons this essay was simply an experienced preacher's review of many years of pulpit labor in the light of the collected and ordered manuscripts which silently represented it the writer had much to say to my great prophet about his methods of preparation and delivery and about the pains taken to distribute the choice of texts widely and impartially over the field of scripture then he went on to speak of the ascertained spiritual history of some of those many sermons the messages to souls which in this or that instance they had carried the savour of life unto life or perhaps alas of death unto death which had to his knowledge breathed from them the impressions left on my mind were above all others two first the call to thorough diligence in preparation if the preacher is to give his account with joy and then the indescribable solemnity and greatness of the work of a true pastor preacher be a preacher indeed i may seem to reiterate too much but i must say again with new emphasis to my younger brother resolve to be a preacher indeed by the grace of god do not let secondary things however good distort your attention from that supremely sacred commission preach the word be instant in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine for the apostle significantly proceeds the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine therefore an age impatient of thorough scriptural preaching is the very age in which to seek in wisdom and courage to make much of it do not let organizations spoil your preaching work do not let current events spoil it do not let elaboration of ritual spoil it do not let organist and choir rule over you and claim for music the precious moments called for by the word the directory let me present to my reader in this last chapter an extract from an old book which however may be new to him the book is not one which as a whole i greatly love how could i it is that sternly imposed substitute for the book of common prayer commonly known as the parliamentary directory of sixteen forty five the exact title is a directory for the public worship of god in the three kingdoms its associations are altogether with an unhappy time in which it was a seriously penal offence at least in theory to use the prayer-book even at a sick friend's bedside yet great men of god had a hand in the making of the directory and their words are well worth the reading 
in particular i find in the volume one passage full of gold and wisdom a precious message to all christian preachers it is the section which i now quote exactly as it first appeared and which is entitled of the preaching of the word the directory on preaching preaching of the word being the power of god unto salvation and one of the greatest and most excellent works belonging to the ministry of the gospel should be so performed that the workman need not be ashamed but may save himself and those that hear him it is presupposed according to the rules for ordination that the minister of christ is in some good measure gifted for so weighty a service by his skill in the original languages and in such arts and sciences as are handmaids unto divinity and by knowledge of the whole body of theology but most of all in the holy scriptures having his senses and heart exercised in them above the common sort of believers and by the illumination of god's spirit and other gifts of edification which together with reading and studying of the word he ought still to seek by prayer and a humble heart resolving to admit and receive any truth not yet attained whenever god shall make it known unto him all which he is to make use of and improve in his private preparations before he deliver in public what he hath provided choice of the text ordinarily the subject of his sermon is to be some text of scripture holding forth some principle or head of religion or suitable to some special occasion emergent or he may go on in some chapter psalm or book of the holy scripture as he shall see fit let the introduction to his text be brief and perspicuous drawn from the text itself or context or some parallel place or general sentence of scripture if the text be long as in histories and parables it sometimes must be let him give a brief sum of it if short a paraphrase thereof if need be in both looking diligently to the scope of the text and pointing at the chief heads and grounds of doctrine which he is to raise from it how the text is to be handled in analyzing and dividing his text he is to regard more the order of matter than of words and neither to burden the memory of the hearers in the beginning with too many members of division nor to trouble their minds with obscure terms of art in raising doctrines from the text his care ought to be first that the matter be the truth of god secondly that it be a truth contained in or grounded on that text that the hearers may discern how god teacheth it from thence thirdly that he chiefly insist upon those doctrines which are principally intended and make most for the edification of the hearers the doctrine is to be expressed in plain terms or if anything in it need explication is to be opened and the consequence also from the text cleared the parallel places of scripture confirming the doctrine are rather to be plain and pertinent than many and if need be somewhat insisted upon and applied to the purpose in hand the arguments or reasons are to be solid and as much as may be convincing the illustrations of what kind soever ought to be full of light and such as may convey the truth into the hearer's heart with spiritual delight if any doubt obvious from scripture reason or prejudice of the hearers seem to arise it is very requisite to remove it by reconciling the seeming differences answering the reasons and discovering and taking away the causes of prejudice and mistake otherwise it is not fit to detain the hearers with propounding or answering vain or wicked cavils 
which as they are endless so the propounding and answering of them doth more hinder than promote edification he is not to rest in general doctrine although never so much cleared and confirmed but to bring it home to special use by application to his hearers which albeit prove a work of great difficulty to himself requiring much prudence zeal and meditation and to the natural and corrupt man will be very unpleasant yet he is to endeavour to perform it in such a manner that his auditors may feel the word of god to be quick and powerful and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and that if any unbeliever or ignorant person be present he may have the secrets of his heart made manifest and give glory to god how the message is to be applied in the use of instruction or information in the knowledge of some truth which is a consequence from his doctrine he may when convenient confirm it by a few firm arguments from the text in hand and other places in scripture or from the nature of that commonplace in divinity whereof that truth is a branch in confutation of false doctrines he is neither to raise an old heresy from the grave nor to mention a blasphemous opinion unnecessarily but if the people be in danger of an error he is to confute it soundly and endeavour to satisfy their judgments and consciences against all objections in exhorting to duties he is as he seeth cause to teach also the means that help to performance of them in dehortation reprehension and public admonition which require special wisdom let him as there shall be cause not only discover the nature and greatness of the sin with the misery attending it but also show the danger his hearers are in to be overtaken and surprised by it together with the remedies and best way to avoid it in applying comfort whether general against all tenations or particular against some special troubles or terrors he is carefully to answer such objections as a troubled heart and afflicted spirit may suggest to the contrary it is also sometimes requisite to give some notes of trial which is very profitable especially when performed by able and experienced ministers with circumspection and prudence and the signs clearly grounded on the holy scriptures whereby the hearers may be able to examine themselves whether they have attained those graces and performed those duties to which he exhorteth or be guilty of the sin reprehended and in danger of the judgments threatened or are such to whom the consolations propounded do belong that accordingly they may be quickened and excited to duty humbled for their wants and sins affected with their danger and strengthened with comfort as their condition upon examination shall require and as he needeth not always to prosecute every doctrine which lies in his text so is he wisely to make choice of such uses as by his residence and conversing with his flock he findeth most needful and seasonable and amongst these such as may most draw their souls to christ the fountain of light holiness and comfort this method is not prescribed as necessary for every man or upon every text but only recommended as being found by experience to be very much blessed of god and very helpful for the people's understandings and memories in what spirit the preacher is to work but the servant of christ whatever his method be is to perform his whole ministry one painfully not doing the work of the lord negligently two plainly that the meanest may understand delivering the truth not in the enticing words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power lest the cross of christ should be made of none effect 
abstaining also from an unprofitable use of unknown tongues strange phrases and cadences of sound and words sparingly citing sentences of ecclesiastical or other human writers ancient or modern be they never so elegant three faithfully looking at the honour of christ the conversion edification and salvation of the people not at his own gains or glory keeping nothing back which may promote those holy ends giving to every one his own portion and bearing indifferent respect unto all without neglecting the meanest or sparing the greatest in their sins four wisely framing all his doctrines exhortations and especially his reproofs in such a manner as may be most likely to prevail showing all due respect to each man's person and place and not mixing his own passion or bitterness five gravely as becometh the word of god shunning all such gesture voice and expressions as may occasion the corruptions of men to despise him and his ministry six with loving affection that the people may see all coming from his godly zeal and hearty desire to do them good and doctrine and life seven as taught of god and persuaded in his own heart that all that he teacheth is the truth of christ and walking before his flock as an example to them in it earnestly both in private and public recommending his labours to the blessing of god and watchfully looking to himself and the flock whereof the lord hath made him overseer so shall the doctrine of truth be preserved uncorrupt many souls converted and built up and himself receive manifold comforts in his labours even in this life and afterward the crown of glory laid up for him in the world to come where there are more ministers in a congregation than one and they of different gifts each may more especially apply himself to doctrine or exhortation according to the gift wherein he most excelleth and as they agree between themselves spiritual power in preaching i have little to say after the recitation of this passage of pregnant and solemn counsel that little shall be given to a supreme aspect of the whole subject i mean spiritual power in preaching who that knows the lord and contemplates the preacher's work does not long for spiritual power by that longing he means no ambitious wish to be remarkable nor any unwholesome craving to be a leader in scenes of religious excitement he means the deep desire to be an effectual messenger of his master to be the living channel of the holy spirit's energy in his converting sanctifying strengthening perfecting work he knows that it is possible to be truly orthodox and yet not to be this to be eloquent to be impressive to be impassioned and yet not to be this to be unimpeachably truthful reasonable intellectually convincing and yet all the while not to be this how shall he be a vehicle of spiritual power the open secret the scriptural answer is very simple but it goes deep if a man would have spiritual power with men and prevail he must be real with his lord what he says he must first know he must first live as regards him who is at once his master and his gospel he must indeed know whom he has if a man believed and in calm but entire simplicity submit himself under his hands granted a true creed and a humble faith in its subject he must in quiet reality yield himself unto god if he would be used by him observe the apostle's phrase yield yourselves 
parasteisate eftus, not yield to God, though that is implied, but yield yourselves, hand yourselves over to God, as you would hand over a tool, a weapon. And another aspect of the same thing appears in the same apostle's later words. Purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honour, sanctified to and meet for the master's use. Eias menon evchreston do despote. The deeper secret of spiritual power, in God's sense of the phrase, lies there. Let the man be watchful over his scriptural creed, and let him discipline his life, and let him toil in his study and among his people. None of these can be spared, they are all vital. But the central secret, which they, as it were, enclose and protect, lies in the word surrender in faith. And the Christian man's heart must be its own inquisitor before God, in the inquiry after the point or points where you, where I, need to make that surrender for ourselves. In the void thus left, in the chasm thus cut deep into our ambitions, into our self-love, the mighty spirit in his tranquil fullness will spring up. And then, whether we know it or not, we ministers of the word shall assuredly be vehicles of spiritual power to our Lord's praise. Farewell. So let me close these fragmentary words spoken to my younger brethren. May God's mercy be upon the writer. Upon the readers whom he loves in the Lord, may grace and peace come every hour and day, in secret, in society, in holy ministration of word and ordinance. And in due time, when they are no longer juniors, but, if the Lord will, veterans and leaders in the work, may they then in turn pass on the message to those who follow, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Christianity is so great and surprising in its nature that, in preaching it to others, I have no encouragement but in the belief of a continued divine operation. It is no difficult thing to change a man's opinions. It is no difficult thing to attach a man to my person and notions. It is no difficult thing to convert a proud man to spiritual pride, or a passionate man to passionate zeal for some religious party. But to bring a man to love God, to love the law of God, while it condemns him, to loathe himself before God, to tread the earth under his feet, to hunger and thirst after God in Christ, and after the mind that was in Christ, this is impossible. But God has said it shall be done, and bids me go forth and preach, that by me, as his instrument, he may effect these great ends, and therefore I go. Cecil Fordington Pulpit A Preacher's Weekday Thoughts Written in 1878, in the Church of the Author's Baptism, and where he first ministered as his father's curate. Many voices, yester-even, made these walls and arches ring, with their high-sung hopes of heaven, and the glories of its king. Now my footfall sounds alone, on the aisle's long path of stone, save that yonder from the loft, with a solemn tone and soft, beating on with muffled shock, conscience waking speaks the clock. Holy seen, and dear as holy, let me ponder thee this hour, not in aimless melancholy, but in quest of heaven-given power, seeking here to win anew, contrite love and purpose true, near the font whose dewdrops cold fell upon my brow of old, near the well-remembered seat set beside my mother's feet, near the table where I bent at that earliest sacrament. Let me, 
through this narrow door climb the pulpit steps once more blessed place the master's word child and man i hence have heard awful place for hence in turn i have taught so slow to learn to the silence now to hearken here i mount and stand alone while the spaces round me darken and the church is all my own while the sun's last glories fall from the window of the tower tracing slow their parting hour on the stones of floor and wall seems a secret voice to thrill all the dusky air so still turns a soul-compelling gaze on me from the sunset haze sure the eternal shepherd's hand beckons me a while apart bids me in his presence stand while he looks me through the heart sinful preacher ask again in this nearness of thy lord how to him has rung thy strain when it seemed to speak his word midst thy brethren's listening numbers hast thou felt with heart sincere how in thought that never slumbers this great listener stood more near listening to his own high name spoken by his creature's breath how from out the heavens he came how he poured his soul in death how he triumphed o'er the grave how he lives on high to save how he yet again shall come lord of glory and of doom has he found thy message true truth and truly spoken too uttered with a purpose whole from a self-forgetful soul bent on nothing save the fame of the dear redeeming name and the pardon life and bliss of the souls he bought for his think but ah from thoughts like these hasten sinner to thy knees End of chapter 12 End of To My Younger Brethren by Handley Mole